Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, American POWMIA's podcast, the voice of the missing in action and those that are buried as unknowns in our national cemetery. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Baird. Just a boy turning 17 Took me away from my home in Abilene I was sworn I'm a soldier now I was trained to survive And from a boy I became a man We journeyed to a place called Nam Spent 13 months of living in fear They say it's over, but I'm still here Hey America, can you hear me? Don't you remember me? Hey, everybody. How are you doing? How are you doing? How's it going? Going pretty good. Are you getting any feedback? Are we live right now? Can you hear me, guys? Can you hear me clearly? Is that feedback? I, hear I can you hear good. you, guys. Can you hear me I good? Just thought I, was getting, I thought I was getting some feedback on my end, but I think we're all right. No worries. No radio static. Hello there, everybody <laughs> out there in the in the world that's listening to John and I today. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I want to specifically say um, today, Cookie Debador, who um, is Sean Flynn's fiancée, um, she's Sean Flynn uh, passed away in 1970 or disappeared in 1970, and his fiancée, Cookie, she's tuning in from Paris today to listen to this. So um, I just want to say first and foremost, uh, when I'm speaking to you today, John, that um, I'm representing the family and uh, I'm thinking about Rory and about Cookie and about their feelings when we go through this now. So um, how are you, John? What, what, what's been going on? Oh, just same old, same old, all work, no play. Okay. <laughs> hey, hello to Blaine from Rayleigh's Creative Travel. He's already jumped in and joined us. Okay, cool. No worries. Can you hear me? Okay, so... Um, so today we're, we're going to go back to speaking about the disappearance of Sean Flynn and Dana Stone in, um, on April 6, 1970. Today we've got some maps that we're going to go over and we're going to essentially explain to everybody in a very clear visual way what happened to Sean and Dana and how it happened to Sean and Dana. And John, John Bear this week sent me some documents which were from a U-2 flight. Is that, is that uh, correct, yeah. John? Yeah, they called them dragon flights back then. It was the U-2 spy plane uh, that was doing aerial reconnaissance for the CIA. And uh, yeah. I happened to stumble into a bunch of them in the CIA archives. And it, yeah, uh, so 
give us some good positions on on uh, all mapping and photographs of these some of these bases on the eastern border of Cambodia. Yeah, so I believe, John, um, that those documents that you sent to me, it said that those documents had those the U two spy planes had observed those positions between nineteen sixty five and nineteen sixty nine, right? I yeah, think there, there was some, yeah some in there from nineteen seventy as well, just before the the Cambodian incursion. And, and, and then we uh, have some eight. from just after as well, right? Maybe Correct. we have some from just after as well. Correct. Yeah, it really showed a buildup of these base areas, you know, uh, uh, in this particular location that we're going to be looking at today. Um, back in 65, there's only maybe a dozen buildings in or around this area. And then I think at the height of it, it was, I think there were some in there around 40, was it 40 yeah. buildings or something I think I read? Yeah. Which so one it, of them was blacked out because it's still classified because it was actually a POW location. Okay, yeah, so this these areas were, um, just to clarify for everybody, um, the bases that we're talking about, these were areas right on in the Parrot's Beak region of the eastern border of, Viet, of uh, Vietnam, Cambodia's eastern border. In the Parrot's Beak there, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, Sean and Dana, they were missing there. So um, at that time, uh, those those areas were used as staging locations for terrorist attacks or insurgency attacks into the south of Vietnam, into Tain In City and into Saigon. People, uh, a lot of um, insurgents would, uh, they, they would sneak into Vietnam via that position. And that, that area had been used as a staging area probably since the 1940s, probably since 1946, I'd say those areas would have, um, the Khmer soldiers that were Khmer Viet Minh when the Vietnamese were fighting the French, those those positions out there, were, they started to develop those areas in 1946. They were used at their height of the French War in 1954. And then when the American War started in Vietnam, that's when the Vietnamese went back and they used the old positions and they built them up. So between 1965 and 19... Uh, 70 when they were bombed those the Viet Cong had really developed those positions up and they had a whole bunch of um, accommodations and barracks and it they the whole area was their area when you looked at it aerially aerially they controlled that whole area they had control that area for years so Sean and Dana rolled up into a extremely hostile situation and we're going to go over that is that yeah, cool John it sounds good. Yeah, just kind of a little historical yep. background on these bases. It, like you were talking about how they were using them to launch uh, attacks into South Vietnam. Uh, that's Americans kind of started getting wise to it back in 68 during the Tet Offense. Um, yeah. And that's that's Tet where offense. a lot of the supplies and stuff were coming from and, uh, and the people had come across the border there and launch their attacks there during the Tet Offense. Then they'd sneak back over the border to the respite areas that they had. Set up yeah, so, they, so they'd be using these positions unmolested for since like the 40s uh, and they they use them under the noses of the americans in 68 and the southern vietnamese to stage in and do the tet offensive attacks and then the mini tet as well the easter yeah. offensive mini, mini tet so the the vietnamese communist and the cambodian communist the cambodian communists were a very small organization who were essentially the security guards in the territory for the larger vietnamese uh, positions and bases that 
the the VC Viet Cong Southern guerrillas and some Northern Vietnamese army people were the senior officers out in that area. Their subordinates and the security in that area, the Santa Sok, were Khmer Rouge. But there were also a lot of Vietnamese soldiers that had uh, used that area there, that Pum, uh, Pum, Pum Mai, uh, Boss, Pum Boss, Boss Mai, the four, uh, the, the four crossover intersection on the Highway 1. That's just in the area where Sean and Dana went missing. So they use that as an ambush position. The Vietnamese had used that as an ambush position as well. So just to I'm glad, that. I'm glad you can pronounce those names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is yeah, this, this is what this is the result of working in Cambodia and having to learn how to say everything correctly because when I'm speaking to my colleagues that are the work in the Defense Intelligence Agency, Stony Beach, and uh, I can't get those words wrong because those guys are much better at, than me at speaking Khmer. There you go. So America, my American friends speak Cambodian better than a lot of my Cambodian friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, you uh, so what, what else do you, from from a historical perspective, John? Like, uh, what else? What else can do you think that you can say from about about that area and about the the well, bombings? I guess US, from a U.S. Really perspective. Yeah, I guess the bombings really actually started in around 69. They were, I think they were even withheld from the president. The president really didn't even know what was going on. Um, but anyway, uh, the only American influence or, or offensives that we had going on in eastern Cambodia at that time was the MAC, uh, Military Assistance Command Vietnam Special yeah. or the Studies and Operations uh, Observations Group, SOG, which was the Green Berets, the 5th, 5th Special Forces Group that was doing some a uh, few, you know, they were monitoring, actually, they were just basically in there monitoring the Ho Chi Minh Trail that was uh, coming down through there with, you know, the supply route for the North Vietnam down into Laos and Cambodia. So yeah, they had, uh, you know, little operations going on there where they were doing some counterintelligence stuff and, and uh, placing sensors along the, the v, uh, along the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail to kind of monitor what kind of traffic was coming down through uh, into Cambodia, but uh, other than that, that was the only thing that was really happening. And up until um, the Cambodian incursion, which kicked off pretty much the end of April, and then they, you know, the United States had a full contingent of um, uh, American military in in Cambodia for about a month, month and a half. Yeah, and then they were pulled back out. Yeah, I think Sean, Sean and Dana went missing and then Kent State happened within a few days and then in the United States and then within two or three weeks of um, of that, what what was it? Was it called Rock Crusher? Operation Rock Crusher? Yeah, in, in the Parrots, Parrots Beak area, it was Operation Rock Crusher. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that later and we'll see that it was literally Operation rock crusher literally which is which is one of the issues with this whole investigations not only did they go missing out in that area they went missing out in that area a couple of weeks before that area was wiped off the face of the planet by bombing so yeah um so let's let's begin with the first slide john you got that there sir sorry this is going to be like a slide presentation guys so a major insurgent base area is probably located in the southeast corner of Sphering Province, Cambodia, in the vicinity of 
T52 North 10608 East on photography of nine areas of probable insurgent activity, including revetted bunkers, trenching and foxholes were identified, generally aligned along a heavily used trail network, which crosses in, into South Vietnam. A four nautical mile square area of probable support facilities have now been identified along the northern extension of this trail network, at least 140 buildings, one large bunker and numerous defense positions, trenching, um, anti, what's AW and AA positions. Yeah, that's anti-aircraft. Yeah, anti-aircraft are concentrated to the following area. The random building pattern and the scattered defense positions are incompatible with normal native activity in the area. The constructing, enlarging, and dismantling of numerous buildings during a relatively brief time period is also incongruous with generally static characteristics of native habitancy. So, yeah. So let let let's see john um so i'll pull this i'll i'll start okay so okay, go for it. if you see here guys this this first map here okay so this is a map that uh was assembled by the central intelligence agency and they use their u2 flights to be able to identify these bases up on the border so what the most important things that we can see here is the barvet the village of barvet route one pum awesome and the how that is in relation to cambodia and the southern vietnamese border you can see one large the the two boxes have been put over the map by the cia both of these boxes, the large box that crosses over the Cambodian and the southern Vietnamese border and the small box, which is um, southwest of that position, they've been identified by the giant dragon flights as insurgent base areas. So when we go to the next image, we're going to see our actual giant dragon flight data here. This is the flight data that that are being collected probable vc nva activity in the parrot's beak pum bavet kambuchia so you can see there that that's a pretty clear that's probably about as clear as google earth isn't it john yeah i'd love to have the the color photos of it yeah the color photos would be amazing so okay so we're going to continue to the next one this is that's more graphic we can see it but yeah, you can see the bases more clearly from this position. You can see the bases there. Yeah, um, and that box there on the lower left there, you know, there's it, it uh, states there that there's seven partially concealed buildings in that just that one locale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot. That's right. So when we have a look at this map here, that shows it um, shows a close up. We can see. Um, below the big box there's to lock to lock batch lock um and up above pum or some it says monorum so these areas were areas we spoke about last week into relation to where sean and dana were um most probably killed so now what i'm going to do is you can see with this map here this is a map that was prepared in 1969 in preparation for the bombing so um 
you may ask, okay, so where did Sean and Dana go missing in relation to this area? And why is it so significant that you're looking at this? Well, I did a map overlay and I want to show you guys where Sean and Dana went missing in relation to these bases. So John, if you can see on this map. Yeah, the small X. Yeah. Right there on Route 1. Yeah. So but just so you so you can understand in um specifically the distance in relation to that black X where Sean and Dana and the journalists were captured on Highway 1, that pinch point, and the large box to the north of it is approximately 4.2 kilometers direct a direct walk up this dirt road so sean and dana were captured essentially at the security checkpoint the main security checkpoint for one of the biggest bases in Viet Cong, nva and kc khmer communist bases in the south south southern oh, sorry the southern region of vietnam in in the border region eastern border region of cambodia it's one of the most significant bases so sean and dana rolled up on one of the most significant bases in that area at that time the guys who shot up their car and shot up the motorbikes and arrested the, these guys and took them away we can you'll be able to see where these guys were stationed a little bit more as we continue on so um do you want to add anything john no do you want me to i don't know if you want to show it or not again like we, we showed it last week do you want me to go ahead and show that uh uh the last footage okay yeah you can do that now that'll be great okay yeah i was gonna say if you want to keep talking i'll try to pull it up here yeah so sean and dana um yeah sean and dana's final footage we're gonna go over that now um so that's the let's see now we're we're gonna see where the area this is where sean and dana went missing here in relation to the map the last known footage and their point of capture so john's gonna pull that up for us in a, in a second but you can see the the distance between that red dot with the black circle around it that says last footage and the point of capture is about 150 meters maybe 400 meters maximum so, okay i'm ready i'll pull it up here real quick okay let's let's check it out the last known footage of sean and dana it was taken by christian boscott a, a french journalist he's still alive in yeah. Ultime tentative pour se rapprocher davantage de la voiture et avoir de plus amples informations sur le sort des passagers, mais une quinzaine d'hommes courbés en deux, courant dans les taillis pour prendre position, 
nous ont obligés à effectuer une retraite précipitée. Ok, can you go back to where that car is for a second, John? On that video? Oh, no. That's funny. I should remember to leave, leave it up. We always do this to each other, guys. Apart from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, are you taking it back up again, or are we going to continue? Uh, I'm going to take it back up again for you. Oh real yeah, quick. cool. So yeah, what what I want to do is I just want you to stop on the car when it zooms in on that car. Yep. captured. That's their vehicle. So it's going to zoom in. Yeah. Okay. So can we go full screen for a second? Yeah, just back up on there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So if you can, if you look up there, John, it, you see the, 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 the front bonnet of the car is lifted up. You can see behind where the front bonnet of that car is lifted up. There's a gray shape. That's a guy. And then... Yep. Behind the car, you can see behind the boot of the car. You yep. Go back in the tree line there. There's a guy over there too. So um, in the extended footage of this the that the journalist took, that grey shape in the background, he's running around and those two guys, they take off running north up that road towards those bases on the highway. But from the highway, they start running north up towards Tlok to go and get back up from the bases. Okay, so um, can we go to a, a slide now, John? Is that cool? Yep. Yep, go ahead. No worries. So just to, just to re-clarify that, guys. So there's the last footage. That's where Sean and Dana were. Uh, that's where Sean was standing speaking to christian boscott the guy in the pink shirt and sean and where that black x is that's where that car was parked and those guys in the gray behind the car they were running in the direction of north where that arrow is pointing they're running up there okay so I'm going to go down. So what we was talking about last week is what we believed happened to sean and dana um, what the information suggests is that they were captured about a couple hundred meters away from where the last footage was taken. The captives were led north on a dirt road towards the Khmer Rouge and the Viet Cong base area. The captives were interrogated by the Khmer Rouge or the Viet Cong at the Tlok Pagoda before being moved further north when they moved further north the Viet, Viet Cong and the Khmer Rouge that was stationed out there at that time have said that the captives were either executed in Prey Barang near Monorum or they the captives were executed a couple of kilometers north east into Vietnam over the border 
So you can see this in relation to the map. So um, do you have anything to add, John? Nope, nope. You covered that one pretty good. Okay, so we're going to pull this one up. This is where the CIA maps suggested that the insurgency bases were. But when we when I looked into it and I did the overlays of the positions that the um, that were in the documentation, I worked this out. So you can see Sean and Dana rolled up on four. Uh, they rolled up on on that huge base out there on the, the parrot's beak. There was four positions. Uh, I mean, one position and three installations staging areas within about four kilometers 4.2 kilometers north of where sean and dana were captured were these three bases the area where sean and dana were captured there on the highway just um, east of that position just a little northeast of that position there was a khmer rouge installation called pumbos so um that in that for four-way intersection there that area was known as boss may pumbos so there was a there was a khmer rouge installation right at where sean and dana were captured technically they were captured at uh the pumbos boss may khmer rouge installation after getting captured at that installation they were to the significant vietnamese bases the chipu border strong point the Balmir strong point and the Tamal strong point. John? Yep. Yeah, it did. I couldn't believe, you know, after you, you pulled this up and put these overlays in there, how close they actually were to these major bases. And there was yeah, also right. in one of the documents I looked at, I don't think we ever captured it in any of this, but uh, just to the kind of the, the, the northeast of where it says where we've got there on that on the map there right now well you can go back to the other one yeah um, just to the east of there it's not on any of these maps they did have a communication site uh located okay. uh with some of the with some of the u2 overlays so i i don't know there was i remember reading in one of the um i can't remember if it was a dia document or a cia document talking about a communications that went out about sean and dana uh and, and you've talked about it too about having the using the Khmer Rouge from now on on taking care of the the, the captives the, yeah so yeah, they said that the Viet Cong will no longer vietnamese will no longer um take any responsibility for um cap for cap uh, capturing foreign journalists in cambodia and from now on the Khmer Rouge will be the ones that are responsible for that yeah, so that calm site was just to the west of these these bases right here. Okay, so there was more than one. Uh, so that that calm site that you're talking about, John, well, that is the other candidate for where they were executed. Then, right? So the the, okay. the yeah, exactly. So that that's and the position that you're talking about that gels exactly with what the final document you and I are going to go over today says as well. So. Yeah, there's a, there's about four bases. So, what's the distance between the Chibu border strong point, Bormir, and Tamal? Well, about 800 meters. About 800 meters between those bases and 
800 meters to a kilometer between those bases. They're all clustered in there together. And the Pumbos, we're going to start on that Pumbos. So what was at the Pumbos position where they were captured? Let's see. So can we pull that up? Yeah. So the strong point is located um, on the border there. Okay, so strong point is completely unsecured. I know, partially. We can't read that real clearly, but yeah, there's a, there's a one tower, one uh, operation tower, one automatic weapons position, a storage building, which is just outside the, the outermost fence. Okay, so this is what the, the checkpoint where Sean and Dana were captured was actually uh, defending this position. This is a position they were captured. So they'll move north in the area of another couple of places that we're going to go over. So this is a Chipu border strong point. This is the area where the, the base, the main base where they were taken to. The area is secured by an earthen wall. Four barracks support the building, one administration building, and uh, one possible guard shed at the Route 1 entrance. So yeah, that, that says, helps with Lawton. Yeah, it says the area is also secured by an earthen wall and contains four barracks, support buildings, and one administration building, and a possible guard shed at the Route entrance. Yeah. I pulled cool. it up on my email so I could. <laughs> no worries, John. That's cool, man. That's it's that's great that you can. <laughs> thanks for thanks for that. That's American know-how. I'm just being a lazy Australian here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm born a lazy Australian. I don't know. We're not too bad. Okay. That's a that's a strong point we're looking at before. So that's the one on the the highway. Then we looked at the. Yeah, that one says it's at uh, immediately immediate enters Cambodia on Route 92 in the village of. I can't even read it. So let's have a look at the yeah, one that about I just two, pulled up. Two point one kilometers northwest of the Cambodian South Vietnam border. Said the strong okay. point is completely secured by a partially secured by three fences, which have partially deteriorated the strong point contains two barracks buildings one support building and a lower oh it's in a, a guard tower and a, one automatic weapons position storage buildings which is located just to the outside of the uh, the fence was constructed and then then it's uh then it's got a big old uh classification in there where you can't read it <laughs> yeah well this this was very um classified information at the time that uh, Sean and Dana went missing out there and it, it begs you to wonder were they given access to this information or did they just accidentally stumble up on this anyway so I just pulled up one of the other bases up there the Bormir near the Bormir stream which is north of that position uh, so it says this stronghold is located two meters north of Pumtalok so Pumtalok is the pagoda where where it's alleged the journalists were interrogated. It was a temporary interrogation area. So it's south of the Cambodian 
South Vietnam border. This stronghold is secured by an earthen wall. Two fences contains administration barracks, building support building, one storage building, three automatic weapons positions, and one possible automatic weapons position. The, this is just above where Sean and Dana were captured, four kilometers north of where they were captured. And we're going to have a look at the other base that was there. This is the other base, which is um, north, north west of that position. So here, the Tamal Romdul Strong Point is located in the village of Pomsfai Khoi, 1.5 kilometers southwest of the Cambodian border. This strong, this uh, strong point is double secured with earthen wall and fence, contains administration barracks, two support buildings, three automatic weapons positions. Okay, so let's continue. So now what I'm going to do is we're going to check out what we can find out about this base. Okay, so you see attachment 14th March 1969 probable VC NVA activity Parrot's Beak Pumbavet Kampuchea significance this board exemplifies the concentration of probable VC NVA activity which are noted on the Cambodia South Vietnam border 12 uh, NMSS west of Tainin City uh, near Saigon and Barvet. The giant dragon co coverage of this area in the past has resulted in numerous intelligence reports indicating extensive probable Viet Cong and NVA activity, including camps, transshipment points, storage, and bivouac areas. Mission readout, probably the CIA, and giant dragon imagery covering this area has revealed at least eight areas of concentrated probable VC and VA activity totaling over 500 buildings. <coughs> Pardon me. These areas extend into Cambodia to a depth of uh, 2.6. Uh, yep. Let me see. I can't see that part. Yeah, 2.6 nautical miles and are dispersed. Okay. 500 buildings. That's a lot of buildings. Yeah, so they've rolled up on a big base. This is a big base. Let me see. So in in theory, you could you could maybe even say that this was the communist headquarters of southern Vietnam. These areas extend into Cambodia and are dispersed along the border. They contain numerous foxholes, automatic weapons positions, row crops, and a probable training site. Photo 1 depicts a probable VC NVA area which contains over 125 partially concealed camouflage buildings, row crops, and several storage pits with a perimeter defense of foxholes and automatic weapons positions, heavy ground scarring, numerous trails which crisscross the border, and approximately 55 personnel are also observed. Photo 2 illustrates probable partial concealed camouflage probable vc and va activity immediately north of pum sum village so mike luring and i have been digging around pum sum village since 2012 trying to find sean and dana's bones just for the record the family we've been looking near pum sum pum or sum monorom we've been digging around this area without the knowledge of these bases existing out there 
I don't know if Sean and Dana knew if they were rolling up on the biggest base there, but I can tell you why Sean and Dana didn't make it out of there alive. You know, the the Vietnamese, they knew that the bombing campaign was coming, that those positions were going to be bombed. Why were they killed as spies? If anybody who rolled up on those positions at that time Time, they're going to have spies because they couldn't let anybody out of there. Are they going to let any white face out of there with information on those positions? No, because they knew that the Americans were trying to work out where they were, trying to hit them more accurately. If they, Sean and Dana, were able to walk out of there, they would have been able to confirm the positions in relation to the map, in relation to the area where they were. And you can see that's the thing that's missing in the context of the giant dragon documents the thing that's missing is it doesn't have um it, it doesn't clarify where they are those positions are in relation to um the untun map which is the map that sean <coughs> sean and dana went missing on that that that's a map that we've been concentrated on for many years and that the investigations concentrated on john yeah, they, they rolled up into a hornet's nest is what they did. And and, and I agree, you know, with the, uh, the word at that time <clears throat> was that uh, a lot of these American journalists or journalists in general were recruited by the CIA and that uh, uh, a lot of the Khmer Rouge, the Vietnamese, North Viet Vietnamese army, they, they assumed almost every journalist was a CIA asset. So, you know, with Sean and Dana being one of the first they weren't the first, but one of the first being captured. Uh, I'm sure they were heavily interrogated and, and, uh, they knew that Sean had, uh, picked up a weapon against the North Vietnamese in prior, uh, offensives there in Vietnam. So I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, they, they just figured Sean was a, an asset to the CIA and they weren't yeah, going to well, let him go. You know, I'm a as a former security guard and protective uh, protective services officer, I'm looking at that position and I'm thinking of it how I would if I was those guys there, the, the security guys. That's a huge installation. And uh, that's a pinch point on the highway where you can ambush people. And then on that road that leads, the dirt road that leads from the highway up through to Lork, right, that dirt road there, that big long dirt road. Yeah, off the highway. Can you see yep. that one? Yeah, yep. maybe we should go there. I should visually pull it up. Yeah, where are we? So, yeah, here, point of capture. Yeah, so you can see here, this is where the, the, the dirt road that they were led up towards. So, up this, when you're going up towards this way here, there's... Um, there was multiple positions that the Khmer Rouge and the Viet Cong had here, and they could ambush you anywhere up that dirt road that that's heading north. So we just know they were captured there. They were they were taken north. If you have a look at the top of the Untun map, it says Fei Koi, so that's where one of the bases was. Pum Osam, Pum Monorom. This is the area that is alleged that Sean and Dana were killed around Pum Sam and Pum Monorom. That's what the documentation says. Some of it says that they were killed near Pong, Chopping, uh, Pring there. So it's all that top. Yeah, I'll switch to this one. Corner. How's that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and if you go back through the, the DIA files, you know, the POWMI DIA files on the, in the National Archives, yeah, 
you know, it doesn't talk about these bases in any of the documents. Um, when you're in relation to any of the captives, uh, it doesn't say anything about any of these bases. And uh, I find that pretty interesting that they don't mention it. Do you think? Do you think nobody ever put it together, or do you think somebody put it together from the beginning and they didn't want us to know about it? Well, I think back then it was just a classified deal. But but you know after the fact, you know after we went in there and you know in uh, May, June, and first part of July in 1970, I don't think it was much of a secret after that. So I don't know why they wouldn't have put it in there. Yeah, well. I'm just thinking from uh if if I was like somebody's controller and they were starting trouble and there was a group of people that or even if they weren't starting trouble, if I just needed to clean up some uh, loose ends, I would send them to an area that we had data on for for five years and not tell them that they're rolling up on the biggest base on the eastern zone or just tell them general information and say to them hey you can probably go up there they're not hostile they're not gonna they're not gonna hurt you they say that um uh, neil davis blamed the information the veracity on the information that it was safe for them to go out in that area on this guy called amrong who was a khmer rouge uh, not khmer rouge khmer republic press secretary that told him it was safe to travel out in that area it makes me wonder, though, if Sean knew the position of those bases. And, yeah, so anyway, anybody who's going to be out in that area with cameras near those bases, the, the tactical information that they could have gotten out of there with and the consequences of the information of Sean and Dana getting out of there with the camera for the Viet Cong and the Khmer Rouge there, they knew would be like... We're going to let these guys go. And then the American position, the American planes are going to come back and they're going to hammer our positions and they're going to kill all of us and they're going to hit us exactly where all of our assets are. And they're going to know where they are because these we let these two American spies that we captured on motorbikes get out of there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, these are just our theories, but, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. it's very probable on, on what we're we're seeing here with this with these base this base the bases in this area that uh yeah they just they walked right into a hornet's nest and they didn't get back out well let's see let's have a look john at what our witnesses have to say about this then hey yeah, so let's, let's start with that so yeah we're just we're theorizing at this point but here we go so we're back at mr Rua again no van Rua. so cool Okay, Mr. Rua entered service with the Vietnamese Liberation Forces October 1959 and switched to the People's Army of Vietnam in September 1961. In 1964, he became the chief of Ben Cao District Logistics Base at a camp called Monorum in the vicinity. Monorum Camp was also called the French Forest. The command name for that is Pre Barang and Ba Ba, ba sorry, Bobatay or Bus Batay. Busmay, right, Pumbos, it's written on the map as Pumbos, so this is the same, Bus, Bos, same thing, okay. Mr. Rua was a logistic officer for Ben Cow District until the end of the war. At that time, he was promoted to the rank of lieutenant. He retired in 1981. Mr. Rua's duties included traveling to local villages in Cambodia and across the Vietnamese border to purchase supplies and foodstuffs for the camp. 
during the 1970 dry season after the Long Nol coup in Phnom Penh and just before the US invasion of Cambodia, he was traveling on National Route 1 in Sveirin province when he heard about the capture of Americans at a nearby checkpoint. At 8 or 9, Mr. Rua arrived at a checkpoint on National Route 1 at a three-way crossing. He pointed out the location on the map to the joint team. He remembered that at that time, there were US helicopter and aircrafts operating overhead and there was much shelling and bombing of the area. At the checkpoint, he saw two foreigners, blindfolded, bound and gagged. Both of the foreigners were Caucasian with light-coloured hair, but one had darker skin. Mr. Rua did not notice their height. One of the foreigners was wearing a plain green military shirt, while the other was wearing a military shirt with a tiger-stripe camouflage pattern. In his opinion, the foreigners appeared to be about 30 or 40 years old. He saw two motorcycles, one red and one green, at the checkpoint. He was told by personnel at the checkpoint that the foreigners were Americans and were either journalists or spies. The Khmer Rouge personnel believed they were spies. Troops at the checkpoint said they confiscated video and still photography equipment, but he never saw any of the equipment. So you have to remember everything that John and I are saying is an allegation on our behalf, but um, we have these documents. These are the documents that the witnesses in that area, it's the information that they have stated. The boys and the, the girls in blue are passing by in the background. Sorry about that. Okay. Mr. Ruhr noted that the US invasion force was only a few kilometers away at that time. So the Khmer Rouge contingent at the checkpoint took the Americans quickly on foot to the north up a road that runs perpendicular to National Route 1 near the village of Tolok. Mr. Ruhr accompanied the group because he did not trust the Khmer Rouge and believed they intended to execute the Americans. Mr. Ruhr spoke some Khmer and told the Khmer Rouge militia leader not to do anything hasty but to take his time and turn the Americans over to the district. The militia le leader replied to Ruhr, They invaded my country. I will take care of them. The walk took approximately two hours. Mr. Ruhr could not point out the location on the scale map, but he drew a map of the area, a mud map. According to the map, the group stopped at a location 500 metres north of a canal called Vuts in the vicinity of... The Americans were kept at this location. Sorry, we're going to go to the next document. We kept at this location. The next one? Okay, got it. Yes, until five o'clock in the afternoon the same day at that time the Khmer Rouge dug a one meter square pit approximately one meter deep they took the Americans to the side of the pit shot them and rolled their bodies into the pit they covered the bodies with dirt leaving a small mound on top the Americans were buried with their clothes and shoes on Mr. Rua tried to stop the Khmer Rouge from executing the Americans but there was nothing he could do at one point, he was afraid the Khmer Rouge were planning to execute him next. He does not remember the names of the Khmer Rouge personnel involved in this incident. He remembered the name of the Khmer Rouge commander in the area at that time was Ta Chan. He believes that Ta Chan died in the war. When asked if he ever seen or heard of other foreigners captured in the area, Mr. Rua hesitated to respond. He did not want to discuss any incident he only heard about and did not personally see. Finally, he talked of another incident where a tourist-type van was captured by Khmer Rouge troops. He could not remember where or when the incident happened, but he remembers that a woman and several men were captured together. He did not know what 
happened to the individuals in the incident. So that's probably Dudman and uh, the, the group that was released, right? Yeah, I that's forget her name for some reason. It's, yeah, it's not coming to me here. Yeah, she's, so she's Mr. over France too. Yeah, Mr. Rua is willing to travel to Cambodia to assist in finding the Americans lost in this case. He feels a sense of duty to help recover the Americans and return them to their families because he feels guilty that he could not stop the Khmer Rouge from killing the Americans. He made numerous trips to Cambodia since the war but has not been to the site since the incident. However, he feels confident that he could find it again. He has not been to Cambodia in the last six years because he believes the country is unstable. No shit, Sherlock. Still unstable. Sorry, no, I love you, Kampuchea. You're, you're a wild horse to tame, though, Cambodia. So interviewed Mr. Ngo Van Rua, Vietnamese witness. He provided additional details of the Khmer communist capture of the two journalists and their movement to an area north of National Route 1. Mr. Ngo Van Rua led the, the team to leave the Khmer Rouge executed and buried the journalists. The team did not recover or receive any remains or personal effects, however. John? Yep, I'm here. Okay, cool. Any, yeah. Anything to add? No, it's you know, it seems like he's he's you know, it sounds like he's a first-hand witness on a, on a lot of it, but there is some hearsay into it. Yeah, right. So it says Mr. Rua presented his information in an extremely frank and straightforward manner. He is a very intense individual and would not commit to answering any question until he thought for a moment. He hesitated to respond when asked if he had ever heard of any other foreigners captured during the war. He did not want to pass on secondhand information and was empathetic about this point. Since Mr. Rua was in the area on the same day the Khmer Rouge captured other foreigners, he may know more firsthand information about missing foreigners. Mr. Rua's description of the circumstances of the capture of the two Caucasians at the road junction on National Route 1 accurately matches the circumstances of capture of two individuals in case 1588. He, as reported by other witnesses in... Over four years, numerous investigations of this case and hundreds of witness interviews, Mr. Rua has finally presented the first plausible explanation for the mysterious disappearance of the individuals in this case. Mr. Rua seemed very sincere in his offer to help. I'm going to hit the next one for you. Yes, sir. That's the right okay, one. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in October 2005, the RIT met the investigation team. Um, let me see. Pardon me. Okay. During the 1970s, so background, during the uh, JFA in the Social Socialist Republic of Vietnam, the advanced work team interviewed Mr. Dang for this case. Okay, um, deputy, the 19, I oh know, sorry, during the 1970 US RVNAF incursion into Cambodia, Mr. Dang was a deputy commander of the PAVN 9th Division. On the 6th of April 1970, he directly commanded the 1st Regiment uh, People's Army of Vietnam 9th Division and a Sapper Battalion. In a battle against Lon Nol forces at Chipu Township, Sveiring Province, Cambodia. On that date, the 1st Regiment captured Chipu and gained control of Highway 1 from Chipu east to the Vietnam border, Cambodia border. Shortly after the capture of Chipu, 1st Regiment reconnaissance soldiers observed a white sedan. 
traveling west on Highway 1 between Chipu Province and the Mok Bai border crossing on the Vietnam Cambodia border. Mr. Dang also saw the vehicle and ordered the first regiment soldiers to stop the car and capture the occupants. They captured two journalists, two Caucasian males, and a driver from Vietnam. Mr. Dang did not know the nationality of the two Caucasians, only that they wore civilian clothing with short sleeve shirts. Mr. Dang suspected the Caucasians were spies since they had still camera and movie equipment. Okay, next. Yep. He ordered. Yeah. So, um, circumstance of loss. On the April the 6th, 1970, American journalists Sean Flynn and Dana Stone were driving two red Honda motorcycles along Highway 1 from Phnom Penh, Cambodia to the Vietnamese border area to obtain proof of U.S. and Arvin border crossing operations. Communist forces reportedly captured them 10 kilometers east of Chipu Township in Sveiding Province. Proximity cases of 1588, 1585, and 1589 involve French, Japanese, Austrian, and German journalists, a total of eight third country nationals, also captured in Cambodia while traveling on Highway 1 toward the Vietnamese border between the 5th and the 8th of April 1970. On the 1st of November 2005, the research and investigation team interviewed Cambodia last known alive case 1588 in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. The writ interviewed one witness, Mr. Tsung Van Dang, Deputy Commander of the People's Army of Vietnam, 9th Division at the time of the incident. Mr. Dang confirmed that on 6th of April 1970, he commanded the 1st Regiment 9th Division when it attacked Chipu Township's Sveiring Province. After the battle, Mr. Dang saw two Caucasians traveling in a white sedan along Highway Route 1. Okay, so um, he ordered unrecalled members of his unit. Uh, yeah, so after the, after the battle, Mr. Dang saw two Caucasians traveling in a white sedan along Route 1 between Chipu and the Vietnam border. He ordered his subordinates to capture them. Unrecalled members of his unit escorted the prisoners to the 9th Division headquarters in the Vam Chang Chao in Kampuchea across the border from the village of Phuc Vinh Chao Tan District, Painting Province, Vietnam. Mr. Dang speculated these troops to transport the prisoners uh, I know, yeah. He ordered the troops to transport the prisoners to the 9th Division headquarters, which at that time were located in the Vam Chang Chao area in Cambodia across the border from the Vietnamese village of Phuc Vinh, Chao Tan district, Tainan province. He could not point out the specific location of Vam Chang Chao on a map. Mr. Dang speculated these prisoners were killed and buried in the Vam Chang Chao area. He never saw an associated grave and claims not to have any further information of these two individuals. During the Battle of Chipu, Mr. Dang was located just north of the township. After the battle, he entered Chipu to observe the aftermath. They withdrew to Bavet village on Route 1 near the border when People's Army of Vietnamese forces had established two anti-aircraft artillery emplacements. This was a location where the 1st Regiment forces captured the two Caucasian journalists. Well, nice to want to get out there taking photos of the anti-aircraft artillery emplacement, John. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. Yep. 
this is the location. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> this is the location where the first regiment forces captured the two Caucasian journalists, because the first regiment completely controlled Highway One from Chipu to the border. If Pavan troops had captured any other foreigners in that area, Mr. Dank's subordinates would have reported it to him. He knew of no other foreigners captured during that time. The 1st Regiment, along with an attachment of Sapper Battalion, was the only People's Army of Vietnam unit stationed in the area of the case 1588 incident at that time. The 2nd Regiment, 9th Division, was operating in Kampong Chum Province, Cambodia. Mr. Dang had no knowledge of any POW camps in Cambodia or Vietnam, Mr. Dang stated, Mon Nol forces continued to operate west of Chipu Township after People's Army of Vietnam forces seized it. Also, scattered groups of Khmer Rouge forces were operating in the area, but he did not know their exact location or anything about their operations. He had no knowledge of Lon Nol or Khmer Rouge forces capturing any foreigners in that area. Mr. Dang stated People's Army of Vietnam forces sometimes cooperated with Khmer Rouge forces and had turned over two American C-130 pilots to the Khmer Rouge at their request. However, he could not provide any details on this incident. Nonetheless, he maintained that he did not turn any foreign prisoners over to Cambodian forces around the time of the Battle of Chipu. Mr. Dang suggested that a team interview the following 9th Division veterans for information on the case. Both individuals were present at the 9th Division headquarters in the Vang Chang Dao area where the 1st Regiment troops took the two Caucasian prisoners. Mr. Wing Vang Quang, aka Nam Phong, former PAVN 9th Division political officer, um, is one of the guys they want to speak to. They spoke to Mr. Quang and he said he had no knowledge of the incident that there was no need to interview him. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, next. next. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. I don't, I don't know anything about it. Guys, okay. Are we missing one? No? Yeah, so um, maybe, I think. It went from 4310 to 4311, so. Okay, it's okay. So this guy said that they were taken to the higher headquarters all shot he didn't care so this is the thing uh when when this guy that we're talking about was interviewed at the end of the interview the americans were asking him where were these two guys in that, that shot at the base who should we speak to and he said i don't care if they were taken to the high headquarters or shot on the spot he convinced he was convinced that the two caucasian prisoners were dead but he could not provide any more details to confirm their deaths so that's pretty brutal. He's just like, um, uh, I don't care if these guys you were talking about were shot on the spot or were taken to higher command and shot on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, he it says here, yeah. So Mr. Dang provided information on the possible, uh, probably 1589, but it, it could be related to any of the journalists that were missing. They cannot correlate, correlate the information Mr. Dang provided on the two C-130 pilots to any unaccounted for case. But Mr. Dang appeared agitated several times throughout the interview and at one point stated he did not care if the captured prisoners were taken to the headquarters or shot on the spot, were taken to the higher headquarters or shot on the spot. He also provided, uh, he also appeared convinced that the two Caucasian prisoners were dead. So he probably knows much more about it. Maybe he pulled the trigger. But right. um, he could not pro provide any more details. Okay, so next uh, document. Background, two comes name has surfaced in numerous reports from Cambodia since the Lon Nol era in Kampuchea. In 1972, two cam was reported to the command 
of the force of 2,400 ethnic Vietnamese Cambodian residents operating under the designation of the 82nd Division in Central Cambodia. It is possible they were actually affiliated with the 9th Pavan Division. There are eight unresolved incidents involving 11 U.S. military personnel that occurred in areas which the 82nd Division was active there are also nine unresolved civilian and foreign national losses in those same areas too. Cam was also reportedly active in negotiations with the Khmer Rouge in 1976 after the collapse of the Republic of Vietnam. But before the outbreak of the Cambodian Civil War, he was involved in the talks. So Mr. Dang stressed in his introductory statement, he never served as an advisor to the Khmer Rouge. He began working with a volunteer force of ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia in 1950 and later became the deputy political officer for the Pavan 1st Division after it deployed to Cambodia in 1970. He remained in this capacity until the liberation of the South. From 1975 through 1996, Mr. Dang served as a deputy commander of a Vietnamese unit that acted as a liaison between the Vietnamese Central Committee and the KR. This unit was led by Comrade Phan Hien. Missing Americans, Mr. Dang recalled two incidents which involved Americans lost or captured in Cambodia during the war years. First, in April on by 18th April 1970, the entire Tukmias region had been liberated at that time. Mr. Dang was the deputy political officer for elements of the Pavan 1st Division that operated in Kirivong. Uh, his unit area of operations extended to Kampot, provincial border following the liberation in May 1970 elements of the 410th Battalion Pavan 1st Division detained a group of five television journalists at a three-way intersection. Okay. It looks like I got a little mixed up here. Yeah, maybe. So, um, sorry guys, we just had a little bit of a mishap there. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's the right one either. Let me see. Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's TCAMs. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So the Khmer Rouge policy on prisoners. In 1951, Ho Chi Minh issued a directive which set the policy for Vietnam vis-a-vis Kampuchea. This directive called for Vietnam to provide the same assistance to Cambodians as they did for their own people in the struggle for independence. At the same time, Vietnam was obligated to avoid the appearance of intervention into Cambodia's internal affairs. Unlike Vietnam, the Khmer Rouge never had an established policy for handling prisoners of war and there was never an agreement between Vietnam and Cambodia regarding prisoners. This applied to the Americans, Khmer, and especially Vietnamese prisoners. Mr. Dang stated that after the 17th of April liberation of Phnom Penh, the first and foremost goal of the Khmer Rouge was total annihilation of the former puppet forces. There was no policy for taking prisoners, only to search out and eliminate the last vestiges of the former regime. Mr. Dang added that, in his opinion, the biggest mistake America ever made was their support of the coup d'etat staged by the Lon Nol forces. History of the Khmer Rouge prior to 1970. Forces loyal to the King Sihanouk had almost totally eliminated the Khmer Rouge. Only small pockets of Khmer Rouge remained dispersed throughout Cambodia under the guidance of Kiel Sum Fun. After the American-sponsored coup d'etat, Lon Nol loyalists were isolated in Phnom Penh because they did not have the strength to operate in the countryside. At this time, Sihanouk issued an appeal for a revival of the Khmer Rouge and forces loyal to the Pol Pot. With the support of the People's Republic of China, they, became, they began a campaign of horrifying around-the-clock revenge. 
this campaign was directed not only at America, but against Vietnam as well, and was a result of the liaison between Sihanouk and Pol Pot. At this time, Mr. Dang and his entire family were imprisoned by Pol Pot for one week, were forced to go along with his edicts. By 1972, the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese were fighting throughout the six provinces in southwestern Vietnam. So there wasn't any real agreement between Vietnam and Cambodia about what was going on out there at that time from a political perspective. Right, John? That's what it seems like before people have made out otherwise. Let me see this. Where are we? So, uh, which one's first? Maybe you had that right, John. Let me see. Yeah, I just okay. went this one was all. It's okay. I'll just I'll just quickly go through this. So Arthur Salkoy said that they shot the two journalists and buried them. The burial site is situated, is situated amongst three large mango trees near a Viet Cong field hospital in Otamao village, Monorom commune, Svetiep, Svetiep province. The field hospital was located roughly 300 meters to the west of the burial site. The Otamao stream ran just behind the hospital to the east. The stream flows all the way to Tlok village. The hospital had compartmented rooms. Mr. Sao estimated that there were a total of 70 to 100 hospital beds. It did not have any associated cemetery. The dead from the hospital were taken back to Vietnam. In, uh, in 1972, the hospital was dismantled and remobilized. Mr. Sao Khoi said he did not know what happened to the Khmer Rouge and Viet Cong forces because they separated. Um, According to Mr. Salkoy, the typical practice for burying bodies was to wrap them in plastic and bury them with all clothes and objects. Mr. Salkoy said that generally the Viet Cong forces would release prisoners, but the Khmer Rouge would kill them. Other witnesses, um, Mr. Salkoy knew only of one other person who might have information about foreigners captured in the area. Mr. Ut An was previously reported as Ok An. He knows something about it. Okay, so... Sorry, guys. Let me see. John, I'm just going to pull this up. Yep. Okay, so just about that that last bit of information. Open source reporting indicates that the Vietnamese communist forces had a local headquarters base north of Wat Tlok in the Tlok village, Trak Motres commune, Svetin, Kampuchea. The headquarters was used as a temporary detainment facility and interrogation center. Tlok is spelt Tlok. So, um, when we're talking about that information in relation to the map that we looked at before, here we go. So they so they were taken up here to captives interrogated by the Khmer Rouge VC at the Tlok Pagoda and that they were killed somewhere near Pum Monorom and Pum Osam up on the border. And uh, then when we look at that in relation to the bases again, So our information says that somewhere near, somewhere between the Chipu border strong point, the Tamau strong point, and Pum Monorom, that Sean and Dana and the other journalists were killed and they were executed and buried somewhere in the area of those three bases. Which one? To the witnesses. Yeah, but which one, right? Who knows which one they took them to? It's like playing uh, roulette 
Okay, let me see. What's this one? By process of elimination, I think it's probably the one that had the guard tower in it. Yeah, probably. Okay, so this woman, she had been warned by the Vietnamese to leave the area. Um, her, her time frame associated with her sighting is correct. Then it would have been near the period associated with the US South Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia. Com Communist Vietnamese forces were very active in Svayring province at the time, attacking towns like Chipu and Prasot. There were many dangers facing the indigenous Cambodian population. Thus, why would she place her life in jeopardy to follow and then hide while watching the activities of the communist Vietnamese soldiers holding foreign captives? Likewise, why were her father and the village chief risk going to the site to bury the foreigners? Such an act of altruism given the political military situation and the fact that the captives were foreigners would seem unlikely. There is, of course, a possibility that the two went to view the bodies in the hope of recovering some personal effects that may have not been confiscated by the captors. The source was not questioned as to whether anything was recovered from the remain burial before burial. Another point which needs clarification is why Miss Sarun failed to inform the SIL team of the location of the purported grave during the excavation of the site pointed out by Vietnamese cadre To Rua. She indicated that during the excavation she had a friend that had dug the site, which they believed to be the actual grave. Why she didn't inform the joint team of her belief as the location of the grave at that time, nobody knows. The action by the source and certain details of her report uh, to include discrepancies with what was reported by Torua would seem to indicate that she just might be embellishing hearsay information. So nevertheless, there are a number of sources who have reported on the pre presence of foreign prisoners in this area of Sveiring, thereby meriting further field investigation. Regarding this specific report, the bottom line is that the location of the potential grave site has been identified and that an excavation should be done. That's the thing about all this stuff, isn't it, John? Um, and this is for the guys in the lab in the US that are listening to us, dudes. Yeah, you, you, there's a lot of unilateral uh, recoveries of remains back in the 90s that happened out there that you guys should be checking to see if we can get some DNA hits on, yo. Yeah. So Mr. Cal stated that she had been interviewed several times by reporters concerning the capture of reporters along Route 1. She seemed quite upset to be interviewed again she is uh yeah she stated that approximately in 1970 there were many Viet Cong soldiers in the vicinity of her house on two separate occasions he she saw foreigners captured on national route one in front of her house she said both instances occurred in the same year but she believed that they occurred in different months the first instance occurred at approximately 12 or 1 when two cars were stopped by the Viet Cong forces two Caucasians were taken out of the car and made to walk up the road north to the vicinity of Tlok the vehicles were also brought to the same road and local villagers covered up the vehicle tracks on the road she could not provide a description of the men to the second um in the second instance two men on motorcycles were captured at the same point at about uh, two o'clock in the afternoon the men were Lot. They wore long sleeve shirts, long trousers. She was not able to remember the color of their clothes. She said that they wore glasses. The men were taken north along the same route to Tlok village. She added that in both instances, she was not able to see much because she was hiding in her house and peeking through a crack in the wall. She stated that she was afraid that she would be executed if she was seen watching the activities of the Viet Cong. 
At this point, Mr. Cowell stated that she knew nothing further about the incident, but agreed to be interviewed again. That makes me think, wonder if she's actually uh, witnessed the, the capture of the first journalist, not Sean and Dana. Well, yeah, well, she said that she'd seen them captured on motorbikes too. So maybe she just saw two of the incidences and she recalled them to be in the same month, but because it was 40 years before, it it was inaccurate. So the team re-interviewed witnesses there. Mr. Carlson found an effort to clarify her story concerning the Vietnamese capture. She described three incidents where Vietnamese forces captured foreign journalists near her house in all three incidents she was the only uh, sorry in all three instances she only saw the foreigners during their capture and never again in the first instance at approximately 9 a.m in possibly february 1970 vietnamese forces shot out the tires of a car traveling west to east on highway one according to miss cow from approximately 50 meters away she saw two foreigners taken from the car stripped of all their clothing and shoes and marched up the road north towards the lock that does not sound good if they're taking your clothes and they're taking your shoes when they capture you they're not gonna they, they don't have good plans for you in general i would say sir yeah. um, so she was not able to describe the foreigners she stated that she heard that the vietnamese burned the car along the road to lock this information information cannot be correlated according to miss cow in the second incident uh, instance a car came from east uh, came from the east and was stopped by vietnamese forces she was not sure of the month but was sure the incident occurred after the first incident in 1970 she was not sure how many passengers were in the car however she saw the vietnamese lead the passengers along the road to Tlok. this is the common stated stated um reporting these guys were captured, whether it was Sean and Dana or it was the other guys in the car, they were captured at the roadblock and they moved north up that road, the Tullock Road, up towards those three bases. Yep. So, so, yeah. The third instance happened about a month later at approximately three o'clock in the afternoon. Two large motorcycles with one passenger each from the west. The foreign passengers carried large bags on the motorcycle. She described each of the passengers. One had black plastic glasses and black hair, while the other had no glasses and blonde hair. She stated that she saw the incident from about 50 meters away. She said the Vietnamese forced the foreigners to take off their clothes and shoes and walked it to lock. This information probably correlates to case 1588. It is possible that the Vietnamese had mistaken about the date and circumstances of the two other incidences. Mr. Cow, Mrs. Cow, Miss Cow, I mean, was apologetic for not being able to provide an accurate account of the incident. She stated that she knew of other witnesses, Mr. Ok Sen, who lived nearby, who knew more about the capture of the journalists. So, yeah, it definitely sounded like Sean and Dana. Yeah, and uh, as, as I said, if someone takes your shoes away from you, it's not a good sign. It's not. It's not a good sign that they have good intentions for you. It makes me believe that what uh, Sihanouk said is that they were captured by hostile forces is probably true. Um, so Mr. Ock described the Vietnamese communist capture of three groups of foreigners along National Route 1 on or on the same day in March 1970. Mr. Ock said that the Viet Cong troops preparing a roadblock along National Route 1 at approximately 
8.30 or 9. Two troops were positioned on the north side of the road with an AK-47 rifle and a B-40 type rocket-propelled grenade launcher. A Viet Cong squad was positioned to the south of the road. According to Mr. Ock, at approximately 9, a white diesel Mercedes-Benz car came from the west. The two Viet Cong troops on the south side of the road fired on the car, shooting out the tires and killing a nearby water buffalo. Oh, holy cow. Mr. Ock stated that he saw three foreign passengers and one Cambodian driver in the car. He described the passengers as followed. One was a very tall Caucasian male with brown hair green or blue eyes, wearing glasses, a khaki shirt and trousers. He believed the other two foreigners were either Korean or Japanese. The two were very short, wearing white shirts and black trousers. The Viet Cong captured the three foreigners and the driver of the car. Mr. Ock stated that the Viet Cong forced all four to remove their clothing and shoes. The Vietnamese tied the Caucasians' hands behind their back. The Japanese passengers and the driver were not tied up but they held their hands up in the air. All four were marched at gunpoint north up the road to the pagoda at Tlok. It doesn't sound like there was much holy shit going on there. The car was taken north along the road to Tlok and burned and buried nearby. The incident correlates to 1585. According to Mr. Ock, on the same day at approximately eight or nine, two tall Caucasian men riding two motorcycles came from the west. Mr. Ock surmised that they saw the Vietnamese capture of the car because the motorcycle stopped approximately 300 metres to the west of Route 1. He saw the motorcycles withdraw to the west and surmised that they went back to Chipu because they returned to the capture point of the car at approximately 10.30 or 11. Mr. Ock noted that both men wore vests. The Vietnamese immediately captured the two men and took all their equipment, cameras and clothing and tied their hands. The men were taken on foot to lock. Local villagers reportedly took the motorcycles to the east, but later Vietnamese forces riding the motorcycles returned to the capture point and turned north to lock. So, yeah, those motorcycles were valuable. They were brand new motorbikes, brand new. Yep. According to Mr. Ock, he heard that at approximately uh, 2.30 on the same afternoon of the other two incidents, a third group of foreigners in a car were captured by Vietnamese forces at the same location, but he did not know the details of that capture. So we're pretty deep in on this now, guys. We're not that far away, though. Right, John? Yeah, it's consistent reporting that they were all marched north without their shoes. Yeah. That's it's very scary to think about that, you know, if some if somebody if you were captured and then you they took your shoes, you would just know, well, I'm a dead man. Yeah. So the French forest, uh Prey Barang, this is those three bases, they were positioned in a, a cluster of trees that was pre- referred to as the French forest, Prey Barang. So he described the camp as being approximately two kilometers squared and it was divided into three separate camps called Prebarang Monorom and a third location of which he could not remember the name. He noted that the Vietnamese called the area B2, Bear High, and that their logistics officer in the area was called Turu Tarua. He believed that Turu currently lives in Long Can, Ben Cao, District Tainin, Vietnam. Mr. Ock stated that a local villager mr 
Pal Kumye was also very familiar with the capture of the foreigners on Route 1. So they continued to the area. So it says they went to the area where the witness saw four, he reported the destruction and the burial of a white diesel Mercedes-Benz car that was captured with the first set of reporters. The team found an approximate two to three meter diameter hole where according to local villagers, the car was once buried. The team found small pieces of metal at the site, but nothing to identify the automobile. The team then moved to the grid coordinates where and interviewed one witness who reported seeing two blindfolded foreigners being led north to the area of the Viet Cong camp called Prebarang. So yeah, they, the the giant dragon pictures that we were looking at before, that, that area, those three bases were called Beihai B2 or they were designated as B2 or they were also called Prebarang. Prey pre meaning forest, Barang meaning foreigner foreigner forest um and i think it's because the french the french used that location as a plantation in the old days mr calm stated that on 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 pardon me on an unknown date at approximately 3 30 he saw two foreigners led by Viet Cong troops past his house towards the monoron base he described the two men the first was a skinny Caucasian, tall, wearing a green T-shirt and blue, possibly denim shorts, Sean Flynn. His hair was light, brown and curly. The man's eyes were covered with a cloth and he was being led on a rope leash tied around his neck. However, his hands were not tied. The man was not wearing shoes. The second man was a Caucasian, short, with straight, light brown hair, wearing a white short sleeve button shirt blue trousers his eyes were covered he was led by a leash around his neck his hands were not tied he was not wearing shoes mr cam reported that after the men were led past his house a small white car went in the same direction he added that neither men appeared sick or wounded so they've taken your shoes they tied parachute lead around your neck and they're leading you around like you're a water buffalo. Exactly. Horrible. So let me see. Um, do, you, do you have anything to add at this point, John? I don't. It just seems to me like it's all pointing in one direction and it's the direction of those bases. So yeah, this is this is more information on those bases, John. Second of June, nineteen seventy. So, um, so yeah. this this information that we're about to go over. Yeah, this is this is stuff that was right after right after the incursion when we were getting ready to pull out of Cambodia. Yep. So this is about the bombing these bombing camp the bombing campaign here, right? Yes. You can see here. So it was called Operation Rock Crusher, and it's the offensive that the American Southern Vietnamese forces um, staged approximately three weeks after Sean and Dana went missing into the region that they were captured. So into the Prey Barang region. Um, let me see. Yeah. So now... Sean and Dana were captured out there. Then there's a three-week gap. And then in three weeks, there's one of the largest bombing campaigns in history went down out there. So these concentrations were deployed through six major areas included over... The, so these are the targets that, that they hit. 
6,500 structures, transshipment and storage centers, encampments, staging areas, possible weapons repair and munitions, manufacturing facilities, trading centers, and commun communication stations, all of which were um, defended by an elaborate network of trenches, foxholes, and automatic weapon and mortar positions. A probable headquarter complex located immediately south of Batu was identified when comparative photography of March and October 1968 revealed that the facility had expanded from 40 to 180 buildings, storage pits, row crops, and numerous defensive positions. Mission readout. The Giant Dragon CIA flights reveals that this complex and related facilities in this area of the Parrot's Beak have been raised. Excessive cratering, which would normally indicate aerial or artillery bombardment, is not observed, suggesting that this was solely a ground operation. Ground photography and summary reports also indicate ground operations only. But there was a lot of air operations going down there, wasn't there, John? Yeah, there was a lot more than anybody knew. Up. State that Communist Military Subregion 2, Bear High, whose area of operations extended from Saigon to the Cambodian border, had known an attack was imminent two days prior to the 1st of May, but time was too short to effectively organise withdrawal and defensive plans. Reports further state that this sub-military region lost most of its personnel and supplies in the ensuing attack. So these guys had prior warning that this was going to go down. They reckon they had two days warning, but I reckon they probably knew about it months in advance. Short and Dane were captured 6th of April, 1970. This is saying that they knew about it two days before May. So I don't know. Maybe yeah, yeah it was within a couple of days, like a week after Sean and Dana were actually captured. The um, 5th Special Forces Group was, um, well, the, the, the South, South Vietnam Army. Vietnamese army that was working with the, the U.S. actually attacked into the Parrot's Beak area in the kind of the southern area below Route 1. And so everybody north north of Route 1 actually knew something was going to happen. So yeah, it was, it was, they had over a week, two weeks heads up. And plus <clears throat> in the MACV headquarters, uh, the North Vietnamese uh, in Cosvin, um, what do they call it? The Viet Minh men. Yeah, Viet Minh. They had uh, infiltrators in the in the MACB SOG uh, headquarters, so information was getting out that this stuff was getting ready to kick off. Yeah, and then we come in there and we hit it, and it seems that they said most of the personnel and supplies in that area were lost. So most of the guys that did this like three weeks before. They were bombed off the face of the planet three weeks later. So a compass link photograph depicts one of the caches uncovered in the Parrot's Beak. This particular cache was located approximately north of the headquarters complex and contained 600 um, millim 60 millimeter, 80 millimeter, 120 millimeter mortars, uh, 57 millimeter recoilless rifle, 120 and 140 multi-round rocket launchers, flamethrowers, Heavy machine guns, AK-47s, SKS rifles, PVSH submachine guns, hand grenades, anti-tank and water mines, and extensive storage of munitions. So they had, they were using that as a staging area for a very long time, unmolested. They were. And 
That was actually So the result of the successful Arvin-led cross-border operation Rock Crusher, which took place in the southern portion of the Parrot's Beak, Cambodia, in early May 1970. So this went down one month after Dana and Sean went missing. One month after Dana and Sean went missing, the US bombed every single location that they could have been on essentially and that, that's not me being critical but it's just reality we hit all these these bases out there but like essentially anybody who was on that base would have been bombed off the face of the planet including these journalists the parrot's beak jutting into the mekong delta area of south vietnam has been used as a springboard for attacks against saigon so photographic intelligence confirming communist use of this area dates back to 65 continual enemy expansion cultivated in early 1970 when this area contained the largest concentration of enemy forces ever observed there yeah this area had more enemy combatants in it than than any other part of cambodia yeah so these are the bases again this is the this is the bases Like I said, if it was me, I'd be focusing on the one with the guard tower. Okay, John, so um, you wanted to... There's a document that we want to go over that we were looking at recently, which seems, it appears to me, to be the best lead that there is out there at the moment and it's a u.s government lead is that right john yeah correct it's uh this one here i'll just read the quick summary of it uh summary of investigation on 19 february 2014 during joint field activity 14-2 cb a joint triadal tri triadal trilateral thank yes. you investigation team investigated cambodia last known alive case 1588 in Talsos Village. Yep. Is that right? Tross Commune, Amica Heck District. Romans Heck. Sayring Providence, uh, Kingdom of Cambodia. Representatives from the Joint POW Accounting Commands, JPAC Detachments 1 out of Bangkok and Detachment 2 out of Hanoi. Uh, JPAC Central Identification Laboratory, the Vietnam Office for Seeking Missing Persons and the Kibad, uh, Com Cambodian POWMIA POW committee accompanied three Vietnamese witnesses. All were former POW camp security guards to a location in Cambodia where members of their unit reportedly killed and buried two American journalists in this case. One of the witnesses was a direct participant in the death and burial of the two individuals in the case. Due to significant changes in terrain, new growth vegetation on the site, the witnesses were only able to narrow the site down to a 300 by 400 meter area. So, Mike, the question remains is why why haven't they been using <clears throat> this map and this in these photos um, that were taken by the the Dragon flights or by the U2 flights? Uh, why aren't they using this information when they're interviewing these witnesses and having them mark these spots on the map? why has it taken until now for us to be the first people to put the two and two together on this one too 
You know, that's like, why haven't all the other people that have been investigating this case, why haven't they come to this conclusion? Why have they, why has it been, why have we been looking at this like it's a mystery? That's no mystery. It's no mystery when you have a look at it, when you have a look at the maps there. There's no mystery when you see, okay, this is um, from a map, from the perspective of the maps. Okay, this is pretty much what we knew before. This is the only thing that that is reported this they were, they were the last known footage point of capture they'll move north you can see that that information on wikipedia even that's just general information the yep. information that john and i were speaking about last week which was we were detailing some of the eyewitness testimonies that from the Viet Cong and the khmer rouge this is what they said happened so you have to remember there's 11 guys captured at this roadblock so some guys could have been killed in vietnam and some of them could have been killed near Prey Barang. There's 11 individuals, 11 foreign individuals. Sean and Dana were only two of a group of 11 that went missing in Prey Padal. So um, both scenarios could be true about where they were killed. Before, nobody was ever able to put together how significant these installations were in the disappearance of Sean and Dana and the other journalists. Don't you agree, John? It's very significant. I agree one hundred percent. And why they haven't correlated this information to the case, I, I it's beyond me. Well, I think that um if we had access to the information that the DIA has or the US government has, the actual data that they can extrapolate, we would be able to have what we could work out where they were buried just from the map if we had all of their information. And any of the analysts could do the same thing. I agree. Which, um, it makes me think uh, that there's a possibility that some remains have been recovered in relation to this case that could yield positive identification, but I'm not sure. And I can't like uh, make assumptions about it. It's my belief that there's a possibility that the remains of Sean and Dana have are in custody, but that's just my thoughts on it. Because um, if they had a direct participant and in, in that, in that execution then i think probably and it's at that base in that area i spoke to a u.s investigator who's out there and they they know the that area of that base that 30 by 50 meter place and he was talking to me about using gpr he told me we didn't need gpr out there we had witnesses so i don't know if he means that he found they found the remains on that but i know that the u.s have had people out at this location since at least 2011 trying to recover remains yeah, and this this last statement was taken in 2014. Uh, the interesting thing about the the witness is he was a, a Cosvin um, security officer, and uh, the area that that he stated in in his deal there or his statements to the investigators were that they buried him in a clearing, and it, uh, and they went back like three times in in 2014 before the investigating team arrived in Cambodia looking, but they could only narrow it down to that 300 by 400 meter area and that it was overgrown now and it was not a clearing no more. Well, that's, that's what I was getting to the point that I was getting at. Well, we, we have these maps available and we actually have photography of what these base areas looked like at the time. Why aren't we using that information to have these witnesses mark it on the map? 
Well, I've I've seen I've seen pictures of that of that location there. I didn't we we haven't shared that today because I didn't want to do anything that could potentially affect the U.S. Um, government investigation because it's exactly. the best information that I've seen on it. But in the time since then, that area has been cleared. I can confirm that to you. I had a I had a three hour discussion with the U.S. investigator who he's a he's a main guy that works with it liaises with the US, the US and the Vietnamese government inside Vietnam and inside Cambodia and he's been working on the case since the beginning he's a translator he interviewed Mr. Rua and all this stuff and he was telling me about how he's sure that the location this location is where they were buried he didn't and uh, this is before I knew that they were digging around out there but I'm not sure if they've found any remains but you know when you're looking at all these documents there's been unilaterals bilaterals trilateral operations that have yielded all bits and pieces of people out there over a long time now so i think all of the all of the samples that the lab has that were recovered out in that area need to be run and oh, we yeah. need to we need to support people like mike luring who from a dna perspective and like you who are trying to make these da databases of all these missing people's dna so we can cross-reference it the us could probably get a hit on all these european guys they probably have bits and pieces of these guys bones that have been recovered over the years in the lab there in hawaii but because they don't have any family reference samples to be able to test then the people remain unidentified yeah yeah, it's a. I, I don't know what to add to that. <laughs> well, I brought it. I brought it to the line on this thing, and now I see where it's at. And as a as the one of the head investigators from the family perspective on this thing for over ten years, I've now got to the point where I don't want to go looking for Sean anymore out in that area, and that I've left it to the U.S. government because now they're on the same page as me and their information is much more detailed. They have access to um, through their bilateral relations with the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. They have access to any eyewitness that they want. So if anybody's going to bring Sean and Dana home, it's going to be the United States government. It's not going to be any old journalist colleague, friends of him, and it's not going to be me. I brought Taizo Ishinose home when I was trying to find Sean, that's good enough for me. When that, when he's identified, then my life's work is done. My life's work is to be able to repatriate Taizo Ishinose. That's why I take the hits for, that's why I tolerate all of the shit that I've been through is because one day I want to do the right thing by Taizo and I want to do that in relation to, um, I want to do that in conjunction with all of the different governments that are involved it's a very positive thing for the Japanese, very positive thing from the Americans. And uh, any of the any of the journalists who lost their family over in Cambodia, any of the people who lost their family that were journalists in Cambodia, they've had to live with the fact that because their family aren't carried as US military personnel, that they're not exactly a priority. Um, Sean Flynn and Dana Stone's case is the main civilian priority case in Cambodia and has been since they went missing. But yeah, it's because they're Americans. Yeah, exactly. They're Americans. But uh, as I said, that's a hitch with the Taizo thing uh, that I found uh, that I found a Japanese when I was trying to find Sean. 
but um, you can see what we're talking about where Sean went missing. It's about 100 kilometres away from Kampong Chum where he was apparently killed in 1971. And if they weren't moved out of that area within three weeks of being captured in that area, then they would have been bombed off the planet. If they'll move north or um, west of that position to another base, they probably would have been bombed off the planet. Anybody that was in that area didn't want to be in that area. That was hell, hellfire that was dropped on that area. Yeah, you know, at that time, the, you know, Russia. yeah, the the VC high command and and NVA, they just left a, a rear security force behind. Is all they did to guard the caches. Yeah, they, you know, they knew the shit was coming, and they moved northeast. So whether or not they left the POWs or the captured journalists or the PO, any other POWs there in those areas, you know, it's hard to tell. But yeah, like the Crache Crache scenario that Zalen Grant and Richard Lynott have written about. And right. uh, yeah, um, I don't know if we'll have time to go into that. I, I know Mike Luring wanted us to mention that specifically that there was an operation in Crache with uh, Zalen Grant and Richard Lynott and the JTF or JPAC, and they did some digs up there. And they believed that the journalists were held in a camp for five years and were killed up there. And there's there's been no human remains yielded up there. And uh, oh. it doesn't look very promising. But, no, and the, Ameri the United States government's already come back and said that they don't think they were you know, taken that far north. Yeah, well, it seems like a, it seems like a stretch. If they weren't under the most heavy-duty bombing campaign in history, yeah, maybe they'll move north and they would have survived. But because when you look at the the events surrounding it and all of the different points it's um it doesn't look good it doesn't look good for for that those guys but um i th i suppose the best thing is is that it seems like they were killed pretty quickly so it wasn't like it was a prolonged thing they were captured and then they were killed by some angry people in a kind of knee jerk reaction communist like a some communist uh anti-foreigner uh, hate crime essentially right and there's plenty of them instigated in cambodia even against their own people yeah well it's like you were saying on the last podcast where you know they probably wanted their camera equipment and that was it so what are your thoughts on all this john after what yeah. we've been going on today is there is there any specific things that 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 have popped up in your head about it mate no i do you know it's just you know <clears throat> it's their theories probable theories but uh uh looking at you know looking at all all the stuff that we've uncovered on the on the bases and in that general area and and the witness statements you know just kind of summarize the witness statements uh saying that all these different people that have been captured or whatever all the witnesses that saw a capture take place the 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 people are always uh their shoes were always taken away and they're always led north and that north area leads to those bases. They're within, yeah. within a few kilometers of their capture point. Yeah, that's that's correct. I concur. So, and I don't know if they were taken any further than that afterward. I don't think that I don't think that the people that captured them had so those guys surviving as part of their plan. No. And like those guys, the the guys in that area, the Khmer Rouge that killed those guys. After 1975, they killed like 3,000 people in that village. So those guys were seasoned killers. 
Sean and Dana Rotten, as I was saying, I don't think that they would have let them survive. I just don't think that they would have let them leave that base. And if that piece of information that they captured two journalists on top of taking photos of an anti-aircraft position, I mean, they're going to shoot you as a spy. It doesn't matter how good your rap is about you being a journalist. It doesn't matter if you can speak Cambodian or Vietnamese. It's like, we have literally captured you being a spy. They were literally from the Vietnamese and Khmer Rouge uh, from their, their side. They had literally captured literal spies, guys who were literally spying on their positions. They knew, oh, fuck, we've got a big attack coming here. It's imminent. There's invasion forces not far from here. The Americans and the Southern Vietnamese are loading up to come over and hit us. We've caught these spies. What are these spies doing? These guys must be recon. They must be military reconnaissance. They must be U.S. military recon. Yeah, and they already knew, you know, checking in. Yeah, and they already knew checking into the backgrounds on Sean anyway. It wouldn't take much to know that they'd already, you know, Sean had already picked up weapons against him and fought against him. For Sean, that was the most dangerous place for him to go because the people that could have, the people who wanted him, or that could, that <laughs> the people that wanted him for picking up a weapon and fighting against the communists, they could get him there. They could do whatever the hell they wanted to do with him. And they wanted him. They wanted, they would have wanted him bad. I reckon they wanted him bad. The North, the NVA, the VC, probably even the Southern Vietnamese, they wanted Sean out of the picture. The Cambodians, they want him out of the picture because he was reporting on stuff that he shouldn't have been reporting on. Stuff, just think if from the US perspective, do you think the the US just de, the US declassified those U2 spy flights in like 2003? That information wasn't public record in 1970. Who had access to that? Only the guys at the US Embassy in Phnom Penh knew about all of that shit. Yeah, well, I don't even know if they knew now. about it, but the CIA is the one that had the. You know, the yeah, direct flights and it then... makes me wonder, did somebody furnish Sean and Dana with that information? Did they show them that information? Did they did they show them that map there with those boxes on there? Or was Is it Sean out there? Or was it Sean and Dana gathering some of that information? From other people and going out there? Or yeah, yeah were, they, were they sent out there and told that they could get a story or yeah? But they've probably one of the middlemen has done them in somehow. But I just think I just think it just seems like a high level. It it just seems like a high level takedown. Like you know, send them out there. Send them out to that area that we're planning to bomb next month. Send them out there and you know tell them that if they get captured, they'll get a story and they'll get released. Okay, boom. Okay, and then then they they get whacked, and then we go in and we bomb all the evidence. We wipe all the evidence off the fucking chatboard. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we whacked him or the Vietnam. I know the Vietnam. I'm, I, I love Vietnam and I lived in Vietnam for a long time. I speak Vietnamese and I'm like a, a like de facto uncle to Vietnam. And I love the Vietnamese, but out in that area, um, I think that they, the foreign journalists out there were murdered by vietnamese and the khmer rouge and the reason why they did it was because it was too much of a security risk to let them go because those guys were camped out they were there the position that those guys were stationed at was like one of the the biggest bases 55 guys 170 buildings out there and 55 guys who any one of them would put a bullet in sean flynn's head if they knew that he was there because they knew that he was a green beret 
asset, US asset. All of those guys out there, just a white face. How angry would those people have been to have gotten a hand, get, got their hands on a white face? It's like the white supremacists down in the, in the South getting their hands on an African person back in the days before the civil rights, or during the civil rights movement, all the terrible crimes and shit that happened down there. It's the same, apply the same type of bias from a Cambodian perspective to a, a white person. They're looking at them in the same way. So yeah, that's that's where we're sitting. Yeah, Until we get another so, good witness to come forward, or or they check some of them. I just hope the U.S. government can do it too. What's know? that? U.S. government. I hope the U.S. government, the U.S. government can can resolve it because that's whose responsibility it is. Rory and and Mike and I and you, we can look into this as much as possible. But in the end, it's not our it's not our actual responsibility to resolve these cases. It's the actual responsibility of the U.S. government. They're doing a very good job on all the other cases, and this case is so high, high profile and it's been reported in such an exploitative way in the past including when they're talking about me, when they're talking about Tim Page. Just when they've been talking about this case in general, it's been a tabloid case. So since um, everything happened with me finding Tizer, we should not say I believe the US government has had to classify the hell out of what's what they've been doing so nobody gets a lead on it and tries to sabotage it or tries to release what's going on. And I just want to state that that's not what you and I are doing today. You and I are laying down the evidence that we've been researching together. We're doing it because Cookie's listening from Paris, Rory's listening from South Carolina and Mike's listening. And a lot of the people in the US government out there listening, this is what we believe happened to Sean and Dana. And um, it's very unfortunate that they're not around now to be a part of, to be like the other, their other colleagues that are alive. It's it's unfortunate that Sean wasn't there with Peter Arnett in Iraq in like 1990 or something like that because they were friends and they were they were like uh, contemporaries. Right. That's a disappointing thing about it. There's a lot of people that are in the old hacks journalist group in. Uh, that they deserved to be out where Sean and Dana were and Sean and Dana didn't deserve to be out there. You guys should have died out there and these guys shouldn't have. That's what I reckon. Sorry to say that, but there's some guys out there that have done some really horrible things to me. And I reckon Sean didn't deserve to, to get the rough ride, the rough shot that he got out there. And um, a lot of people have abused, abused his legacy and... They've chosen not to tell the truth. They've chosen to construct a narrative that they could sell bullshit, like rip-off versions of Papillon type of thing, a Papillon type of story. It's all bullshit. And um, and the it, it's always lean on the facts. They've got three or four US government documents and then they just extrapolated off that. Yeah. But yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on today. Um, I just wanted to say... Uh, uh, for all the wounded warriors out there and um, people that are suffering, uh, veterans that are suffering from mental health issues, right? Veterans 365 days. It's a every single day is a struggle for veterans coming back. But, um, you know, we, we, we have to be there for each other and support each other. And um, the people in the civilian world have to 
be a little bit more understanding for our vets too, please, guys. There's a lot of people out there that think that upsetting veterans is a fun thing to do. They use it like a game. Um, so be supportive of our veterans. And, um, yeah, John? Yep, yep, agreed. Um, I guess we'll kick off the outro, but I uh, want to thank everybody for joining us. And, and uh, I will upload this as an audio podcast too. Uh, if anybody's interested, you can go to the website, www.storiesofsacrifice.org. You can catch all the uh, the last two or three podcasts that we've done with Dave, and and uh, we've got a few more planned. So, All uh, right. Okay, yeah. well, until next time, thank you for tuning in to Stories of Sacrifice. All righty. You can hang with me, Dave. All right, no worries, John Bear. Till we have them home.
Bring them home, bring. 